Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So, good afternoon. Um, I hope uh, you feel that after the asana practice and the breathing we've done together, that your body is upright and also that you feel a sense of upliftedness and energy. Can you guys come sit a little bit closer? It seems so far away. And, um, and also that our attention settles and gets unified. When you bring your attention to your breathing, you notice that um, there's uh, quite a lot of distraction. The attention, the mind jumps around a lot. And uh, some days, Karen and I were talking about this at lunch, our levels of distraction can be so high that what we're doing often seems at cross purposes. One of the things we know about multitasking from common sense, but also from uh, uh, cognitive and neuropsychologists is that um, there's no such thing as multitasking. Turns out we can do about three things or four things at once at most. You can drive and listen to the radio and pay attention to a left turn, um, but that's about it. And multitasking really has a cognitive cost, which is that it turns out our brains are actually doing, trying to do many things at once, but it doesn't work like that. So um, our practice that we're doing here together is uh, called samadhi, which is when we unify the mind and body in the present moment. So it's a practice of settling, and it's a practice of calming so we can see more clearly so that uh, we make a space in our hearts for empathy, for compassion, for kindness, for forgiveness uh, to arise, uh, which is not possible when we're really distracted. And sometimes we're so distracted that we feel like we're losing our mind. Literally, we feel like we're going absolutely crazy. And we are. <laughs> yeah. um, so samadhi is the opposite of feeling fragmented. And there's a wonderful story of a young prince who goes to see a monk and says to the monk, I want to know what it's like to be unified and how to do it. 
And the monk says, uh, I'd like to teach you that, but if I really show you how to do it, you'll say it's impossible. And the prince says, will you let me worry about that? If it's impossible, I'll leave you alone. But if not, uh, it might help me. And so how do I get unified? And the monk teaches him these practices of mindfulness of breathing. And at the end, the prince says, that's impossible. (laughs) And the prince leaves. So the monk goes to the Buddha and says to the Buddha, um, what would have been a more skillful way of uh, conversing with this prince? And the Buddha says, probably I would have offered him a simile. And this is the simile I would have offered. I thought of the story because of the mountains. Imagine that you are at the base of a mountain with a friend. And you yourself go up to the top of the mountain and you discover snowy peaks, rivers, amazing old growth trees, groves, bears, suspension bridges. And it's so beautiful. And so you call out to your friend down at the bottom. It's so beautiful up here. You wouldn't believe what I'm seeing. They would say, that's impossible. So the Buddha says, the prince is a lot like your friend at the base of a mountain. So you need to take your friend's hand and you need to guide them slowly up the mountain so they can see what you see. And in a way, meditation, teaching meditation is a lot like this. Uh, I always say that teaching meditation is impossible because you can teach a text fine, you can go through the poly language or whatever, but it's hard to sit still and then communicate with other people what is happening in your mind. So I always feel like my job as a teacher is to get as clear as I can about what happens in my mind and then try and communicate that, which is an impossible task. So in a way, when you're listening to the teachings, one way that's helpful to take in the teaching is to imagine that you are going to have to share this next week with somebody. So when you're learning these meditation techniques, pay attention as if in a week from now you have to share these with somebody. Uh, A child, a friend who's ill, somebody who asks you, or maybe a prince. Maybe a prince comes to see you and wants to know how to practice. And so you have to not just tell them about what it's like from the top, but actually help guide them uh, holding their hand. So settling the mind can seem impossible. uh, But what we're trying to do is not sort of make our thoughts go away, but rather make the mind much more workable. And we do this by choosing an object in the present moment. And as I talked about last evening, the object we choose is inhaling and exhaling. And that's what this text is describing, is how to practice inhaling and exhaling. And last night I gave a description of the context, historical context of this text. 
One thing that also might be interesting to know is when the Buddha's son, Rahula, turned 14, uh, this is the instruction the Buddha gave his son on how to meditate. And uh, this was also the practice the Buddha did uh, when he was sitting under a tree in his early 30s before his awakening, uh, to, to set up the conditions for his awakening. Uh, in other words, it has good pedigree. So I wanted to focus on one section here, um, which is section number... Nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. So uh, she trains herself. I breathe in, experiencing the mind. I breathe out, experiencing the mind. I breathe in, settling the mind. I breathe out, settling the mind. I breathe in. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading a different translation. You want me to do it again? I breathe in experiencing the mind. I breathe out experiencing the mind. I breathe in pleasing the mind. Is that the one you have? I breathe out pleasing the mind. I breathe in concentrating the mind. I breathe out concentrating the mind. I breathe in releasing the mind. I breathe out, releasing the mind. So one of the things I said before we did our supine meditation uh, this morning was um, you're following the breath, inhaling and exhaling. And the key technique, as many of you have heard me talk about before, is feeling breathing. And I offered two suggestions, whether it's the nostrils or uh, the belly, where you can just feel the breath. Just feel the breath. Feeling, inhaling, feeling. Not so much visualizing it, we're very visual, but actually feeling the sensations that we label inhaling and exhaling over and over again. And then we slip off and go into distraction. The attention goes into the future, or it goes into the past. And you should know what kind of person you are. Some people, their tendency is more rehashing, and some people, their tendency is more planning. And so it's good to actually notice when your attention slips off what your tendency is. And the point of the breathing is not that you stay with the breath really tightly, not ever letting it go. The point is, is that when you're able to come back to the breath, that's energy you're bringing into a unified experience rather than energy you're using to maintain or reinforce the vrittis, the turnings of the imagination that are repetitive and meaningless. The more you get caught in repetitive loops of thinking, the less they're meaningful. And it's kind of profound to see how much energy we put into distraction. How much energy we put into distraction. So a body that feels unified 
is a body that has energy and the energy is not being spent in uh, rehashing or resentment or planning. It's right here. And to, to understand, oh, I mean, this has to be a point in your practice where you, you're sitting and you realize, I can't sit. I cannot sit. I am so distracted. And that is the most important phase because that's the phase that motivates you to practice. And that's usually when most people quit because they're more committed to the distraction. You know when people, people often say, like in relationship around boundaries, it's important to learn how to say no. Well, it's like this with our distractions, which are addictions. It's really important to be able to say no. No, I'm not going down that road. I know where that road goes. And to know that we can enter a much more expansive world, a much freer world. And this is called liberation, which is to be liberated from the old patterns that have so much purchase on our attention. In other words, learning to feel more at home and to trust in this moment. Especially since most of us are very well educated, you know. We know how to think and compare ideas and judge and so on. And we get convinced that we can solve all of our problems just from our thinking. And you can certainly solve lots of problems from thinking. But even so, most of our thinking is not actually that clear and that creative and sharp. Because it's really clouded with mixed intentions. So part of our meditation practice is not just seeing thoughts, it's also seeing a lot of the intentions behind our thoughts and behind our actions. See? And this is kind of the ethical dimension of meditation, is it starts, to make a, it starts to allow us to see our intentions more clearly. But let's back up a little bit, because um, we're talking a lot about thoughts. There are all kinds of sensory experiences. There's sound. And the ears hear sound, right? There's smell, and the nose receives smell. There's visual form, and the eye receives form. There's taste, the tongue receives taste. There's temperature that we can get through our skin and touch. So those are the five senses. Five senses. In Buddhist and yoga psychology, there are six senses. And the sixth sense is the mind, because the mind is also a sense organ, and the sense object is thinking. So the mind is receiving thoughts. And probably anybody who's meditated a little bit knows the mind doesn't seem to make all the thoughts. Like, we don't know where thoughts, like a lot of thoughts that come through awareness, we don't know where they come from. Do we? They just seem to come without necessarily even thinking them. And all those senses are very different. Like, 
sound is so different than smell. It's not amazing as human beings. We have sound and we have smell. And sight. And taste. And they're completely different from each other. I have something called synesthesia. I don't know if you, you know about this, where you, your senses get mixed up. And so you can hear a sound and you see it as color. I won't go into the details. Uh, it's not the best uh, thing to have. It's not that. It's kind of cool, but it's not that cool. Yeah. So, um, so with thoughts, see, with sound, sound hits the ear and it impacts the ear. We know it's sound. But with thoughts, when they hit the mind, they're kind of slippery. They don't make the same kind of impact that other senses do. You know, like if someone touches you, it's touch. You, you notice it right away. But thoughts, we don't always notice the initial touch, contact of the thought. We often don't get it for a while, you see. And one of the things we're working towards in meditation, if you start to get really geeky about it, is to be able to notice the arising of a thought, to notice the movement of a thought, to notice the passing of a thought, and to notice the space in the absence of a thought, to actually see that whole process. And eventually, when you get good at it, to actually see a thought arising in space. So actually to see the space before the thought arises. So that we can actually see what a thought is. Yeah. Could there also be noticing the impact of a thought? And noticing the impact of a thought. Or noticing that different kinds of thoughts have different kinds of impact. So I think all of us know that there's the thinking that's charging ahead kind of thinking. Um, I notice this a lot. Um, when I eat with my family, I notice, like I said, and enjoy my meal, and we eat and we talk. But I notice when I'm by myself and I'm eating a meal, I have to remind myself to slow down. When I eat alone, I always notice, oh, I'm always eating a little faster or like not caring so much about like having a meal with myself. <laughs> um, Usually when I have time alone having a meal, it's like ready to get to go do something else. And that's when I notice the tendency of thinking to be kind of like charging ahead kind of thinking. In order to mind, I call it. And then there's another kind of thinking that's more of like the drifty kind of thinking, which is like you don't really know what you're thinking, and it's a little more image-based, like picture thoughts. And that one's a little harder to catch actually. A little driftier. A little dreamier. Yeah. You don't know if it's in the past or future, but it's certainly not quite here. So, uh, if you don't... So here's the, the punchline. And we're going to try this together. If you don't notice a thought when it's arising, then you start creating a whole world out of that thought, right? Like you use that as a foundation to start building. 
And then you take birth in this whole new world. And there you are in this whole new world that's a completely virtual construction. And then that process triggers a whole emotional network in the body. And then that emotional movement in the body creates a whole new pattern of thinking. And then you can be gone for years in that world. <clears throat> so it's important to notice when that slideshow starts and come back again to the breath. And in yoga, we call this vidya, which means uh, to see, to see clearly, to actually see how things are. And also to see that we're living in a world that we really don't understand. And sometimes it goes a lot better when you don't try to understand it. I love a good intellectual argument. I'm uh, devoted to having a sharp mind. And also, sometimes you need to leave it alone, give it a break, and be able to have other ways of uh, being in the world. It's like, imagine if a sailboat had all its weight up on the top of a mast. It would tip very, very easy. So we need to use the breath in the body and the groundedness of the pelvis as a ballast as opposed to just being up here in the control tower in the perch, hoping that things will go your way. And then you can see more clearly, or be surprised even. The other night, uh, my two and a half year old son uh, was really interested in the moon and the eclipse. Did you guys see the eclipse? He was frustrated though. He kept saying, the moon is too high. It's too high. And so he has fresh eyes. So the moon being too high made me look more clearly at the height of the moon, which is something I wouldn't have thought about so much. I just look up at the moon. So the, these habits of how we think influence our perception. The stories we tell influence our perception. Our perception is very much determined by language. It's one of the reasons they, they talk about the importance of literacy for kids. Because when kids read a lot and they have an expanded vocabulary, they have more language to help describe their emotions. And it helps them be able to tolerate and communicate what they feel because they have a, a more sophisticated emotional vocabulary. So our language actually really affects how we perceive. And it also limits how we perceive. So when the Buddha says that uh, we should experience the mind and please the mind, he's talking about how we should notice thinking, notice how thinking's happening, but instead of focus on the actual thoughts, we just experience it as mind. Okay? Like imagine being up on the top. What is that mountain called? Everybody always asks those kind of questions in heritage. Her heritage? Heritage Mountain. It's so beautiful. So you're on the top. It's not a mountain? It's a high mountain. Well, this one's the ridge. 
What's that? Heritage Mountain. Eagle Ridge. Eagle Ridge? Well, there's Heritage Mountain, and then behind it is Eagle Ridge. Okay. <laughs> I think. I don't know. I think we've only lived there for two years. You think so it's what? I think mean, it's Eagle Mountain. We've talked about Eagle Mountain? Yeah, the name, the name of the mountain is Eagle Mountain. Oh, okay. Is it China? Okay. It's, it's a lighter bone, no significance. Oh, my God. I'm going to call it Heritage Mountain. Okay, so you're up on Heritage Mountain. You're up on Heritage Mountain. When you're up on Heritage Mountain, you have an overview of the town and the forest, right? When you're in the mind and it's this close to your face, you can't see anything. And when you're over here, you can see what the thoughts are. Oh, planning, past, future, Whatever, right? These thoughts that come up. But when you get a little bit further back and you can stay with your breathing, you can experience mind. This is really important. He's not talking about your mind. He's talking about mind. That it's, there's the mind doing what it does. This is really important. Most of us, we think, my mind... This is how my mind works, and so on. But actually, we're looking at the patterns of the mind. Is this making sense? The mind. And then, we calming the mind, which pleases the mind, right? When you start settling your breathing, what does the mind do? It settles. It settles. It's not so in your face. So that's the instruction here. This creates concentration and release. Releasing what? Releasing the mind to do its thing. Now this is a really interesting way of thinking about our psychology. Because usually we personalize whatever's happening in awareness. Right? Oh, this is my melancholy. This is my anxiety. This is my envy. Right? So instead, we say, oh, envy. Remember I was talking about how everything arises in conditions? Ah, envy is arisen. And then you have this overview of mind. And remember that all of our concepts, even of mind, are all myths. The ego is also a construct and a myth. I've never met an ego. I've never seen an ego. We can infer an ego, but you can't actually, like, pull out an ego. You can't go in an MRI machine and find an ego. It's a story we tell. It's something that we infer. So we're taking a much larger, larger uh, perspective. Let me read you something from a teacher in um, Northern California named Gil Fronsdell. Mindfulness helps to put you into a place of choice, and that helps you with wiser choices in the present moment. As you choose to behave, act, and even think in different ways, it can have an, overall, an effect on your overall mood and attitude with which you approach your life. As you begin exercising that choice, it can also have an 
a profound effect on how you condition yourself, how you predispose yourself as you go forward in your life into the future. So mindfulness has effects on all of these. So we're saying two things. One is, mindfulness opens up a space where you can make a choice. When you're just identified with your thoughts, there's no choice. You're just going to be carried along. So there's a choice. The second thing is, as you train to be able to have that space, it predisposes you to then have a different relationship with that content when it arises in the future. Patanjali says something similar in the Yoga Sutra. He says, a suffering that has not yet arisen can be prevented. Can you repeat that? Suffering that has not yet arisen can be prevented. Most of our life occurs in the wake of reactivity. How much energy do you spend on your reactivity? And, not only that, how much of our inner life is really reactivity? Think about that. So that inner life that you're in relationship to all day and at night, how much of that inner life is actually really about reacting to stuff? How much does reactivity define our inner reality? This is a frightening question to explore. It's remarkable how much settling can happen when you stop trying to fix yourself and other people. And this allows an inner process to unfold that can't unfold when there's so much reactivity. It's so tight. Because a lot of our reactivity, let's face it, it comes down to trying to fix ourselves and trying to fix other people and making plans for their bright future <laughs> and our bright future because of how they'll change. So this is how we work with the mind. So, question? Yeah. So the, the way I see it is the gaining the capacity to control the, of the moment and, and hence the thought mm -hmm. would require a huge amount of discipline and experience. And it's in contradiction with the fact that you're also just letting the moment go and giving it no attention. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense to me. Is that what's going on here? That you can't control the thought, really. But from what I heard, that would seem like the paramount goal is being able to stop the thought before it manifests. No. You're controlling your attention by, using, by bringing your attention to your breathing. Yeah. So here's the thought arising. 
the attention wants to go to the thought and start investing in it. We're controlling our attention, training our attention to come back to our breathing. And then the thought liberates itself. You don't have to do anything. If you try to make the thought go away, you will suffer big time. Got it. So it's the attention. Yeah. It's just the attention that you're controlling. And that the thought belongs to this larger background of mind that excretes thought in the same way that your liver excretes bile. I have a noise thing, I don't know the name of it, but little different noises irritate me. So I think I relate it to that. It's like when I pay attention to the noise, it becomes more and more irritating or it affects me more. But But you can't not hear the noise unless I go deaf. So I have to be able to have the noise come and go without giving it attention. Yeah, like, okay, I'm noticing my breathing. I'll walk you through it, okay? Noticing my breathing. Inhale and exhale. Oh, it's a little bit deep. Just relax. Just feel my breathing. And then there's a fan. And then I'm like, I don't really like the fan. Oh, office buildings. Oh, my God. I remember once I had a job in an office building. I'm so glad I don't have a job anymore. (laughs) <laughs> it would be nice to have a job though and have like the income you know <laughs> all the you know benefits that come with a job and, but anyways it's good that I don't have a job <laughs> the paint on that wall is similar to the paint in my bathroom and it actually needs to be renovated the bathroom needs to be renovated I wish I had a job because if I had a job then I could <laughs> renovate the bathroom easy now I have to like wait until I can renovate the bathroom it reminded me that there was this sale on at Home Depot of these <laughs> tile cutters, because I think I might do my own tiles for the bathroom. And I don't know if I would keep the same color, though. I'm not really quite sure. And then, oh, I should go back to my breathing. So you see, I've like gone into this whole world. And if I'm honest about that world, I've actually been in that world so many times. Maybe a different bathroom in a different house. But it's the planning world, right? So you can't change the thought. You want to respect the thinking. So the thought comes up, but what you're doing is you're taking your attention, you're pulling it off the thought and back to the breath. And as you do that more and more, so this is what does happen over time, is that In the meditation practice, you'll just start staying closer to your breathing, and the thoughts will just move in the periphery, and you'll only get stuck to a few of them, but not too many. You see? But what happens over time is, and this is the predisposition part, which is it changes your psychology, where you stop going to those thoughts. Literally. Maybe forever, some of them. And those patterns stop coming up very strong. And it makes space for other things to be in our awareness. That's why this is such a good practice for creative people. Because it it teaches you how to clear a space so that um, new paradigms and new ideas new visions can emerge. 
you know, it's like cognitive therapy. I actually... He refused to pay attention to the neurosis. He won't deal with it. He won't come to terms with it. But this is the discipline for the here and now. Kind of. I did have a psychiatrist friend who calls this cognitive therapy on steroids. Um, It's not like cognitive therapy in that we're actually using the body to do all the work, not cognition. So in that way, it's different than cognitive therapy. But um, we are noticing patterns of, of cognition, and we're using our breathing to ground our attention, to not invest. Does this make sense? Yeah. Okay. So can I ask, because yeah. I've been having some issues with sleeping, and you know, you get up in the middle of the night, it's 2 a.m., you go to the bathroom, and then you go back to bed, and you start ruminating about what happened today, and you get caught in that vicious cycle, and then I've been trying to use meditation mm-hmm. practices to, to calm myself down and try yeah. to get back to bed. Yeah. And I, I find that that's been really helpful, because it's been, it clears my mind, and I find that once I get to breathing, I can relax. And, mm-hmm hopefully get back to sleep. Yeah. But then how do you, tra- and it works well at night, but then during the day, like how do you translate that into your more wakeful periods where you would hopefully use those same uh, practices, but you know, it's different at night versus the day, I think, because yeah. you're using it to try to fall asleep versus trying to change my perception of what may be happening in the workplace. Yeah. Were, were you here last night? Mm-hmm. You were. Do you yeah. remember that woman asked me how she can take her practice into her work? Yeah, you said something about breathing. Just yeah, what did breathing. I say? You said, um, just practice breathing. Just breathing. <laughs> I said breathe through your nose. Yeah. That's what you do. Yeah. See, we're used to using our mind to work with our mind. But what we're doing here is we're seeing that the mind and the body are connected by breathing. They're on the same stick, okay? So instead of using the mind to work with the mind, we're taking our attention and putting it on our breathing. And when the breathing starts to settle, the mind starts to settle. So if I say to you, notice your breathing during the day, every time you come back to your breath during the day, you're leaving the thought you were just invested in. You can't do both things at the same time. It's called reciprocal inhibition. You can do one or the other. So you're noticing, oh, I'm really caught up. And, you know, let me give you an example. Is like someone says something to you at work. You can't stop thinking about it. You're going in loops about it. You walk back into your car, you're driving, and you completely forgot about all the groceries you had to go get. Or you get all the groceries. You get back into your car and like, how did I just get all those groceries? Like you just did it on automatic pilot. Have you ever done this before? And the whole time you were thinking about, you know, worrying and ruminating and having great fantasies about how you're going to kill that person. You know, that's what I'm into. And so you, instead, you come back to your breath and you start to notice that underneath most rumin- ruminative thoughts are feelings, actually that we're using the rumination to avoid. And that's why we leave them and come back to our breathing. Right now it sounds technical, but all you have to remember is your breathing. And why is it important to breathe through the nose? Well, our body's designed that way, and also it calms our nervous system. 
Okay, so you just said the breathing, the ruminations are a way to avoid the feelings that would arise. Yeah, often. So then, so then, do you eventually learn to address the feelings, or is the meditation used to uh, work with those feelings internally and just let them go? If you know, that makes sense. Yeah. I would say that when your mind is calm, there's usually a lot less working through of a feeling than you need to do when your mind is distracted. And often we know what we feel and we're sad or we're disappointed or we're irritated or we're, and we know it. And there's not so much drama. Yeah. When you're distracted and you're all worked up and you don't actually really know what you feel, there's so much drama. So much drama. Do you guys have drama? <laughs> Not in Port Moody. Not in Port So much drama. So, um, so I want to do a 10-minute uh, practice of uh, mindfulness of breathing in order to slip off thoughts and come back to the breath. That's what we're going to do. Every time the story erupts, come back to the breath. The only thing that the Buddha is adding here that you might want to keep in the back of your mind is to see thinking as the mind, not as personal. Okay? So it's not so much like my thoughts, just coming back to the breath, back to the breath. And if you get caught down a rabbit hole, we like, oh, thinking, come back to the breath. It's not personal. It's not personal. It's just the mind imagining. All right? Okay? So, let's try this for 10 minutes. I'm going to give you the option um, of sitting up, if that's comfortable, or lying down, if that's comfortable. 